As I worked through today's texts, my mind uh, flashed back a few years to a scene. It was from the time when I was a visiting scholar in Wales. I was reading in a park. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was damp out, but the rains had moved on, and lots of people were coming outside to get a spot of sun. And I was sitting in the park, and, and I had some books, and I was reading. And then suddenly my attention was diverted and then captivated by a scene that you've probably experienced many times. A little boy who refused to take his mom's hand on a walk. They were walking uphill, and mommy said, you've got to take my hand so we can walk up the hill. But he was not interested. He just shook his head no and pulled her arms in. Mommy held her arm out for little sister. Sister took the arm and said, fine. Now, little sister was probably four. Little brother was probably two. Mommy then looked at little brother, and she commanded that he take her hand, and he said, no, no dice. So she got down on her knee, and she looked at him, and she said, now listen, honey, we're, we're going uphill. If you don't take my hand, you will fall on your face. He just shook his head, no. Little sister then, older sister then got involved, and sister looked at him, and she said, <clears throat> she said, look, even big kids have to take a hand. I'm taking mommy's hand. You should do it too, which I thought was a very sound argument. But little brother shook his head no, and then he said something I will never forget. He looked up at them, and he said, I do it myself. <laughs> so mom sighed, and they went walking up the hill. Too proud to accept mommy's steadying hand for the climb. What do you think happened to him? He fell on his face, just a very short period of time, fell on his face right in a mud puddle. And the mom, the mom turned and she looked at me and she shared that look that parents share throughout the places, that look that just says, of course, of course, right? But as they helped the little guy to his feet and they started up the hill, this time holding hands, I thought about how often I resemble that little stinker. Even as a Christian, here's what I do. I turn away from relying on my Lord. I, I, I reject his outstretched hand of guidance and support. And I look at my Lord and I say to him, I can do it myself. Right? Now you probably know what is the end result, the inevitable end result of that scenario. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Read it with me, everybody together. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. As we summarize in your notes, you got a bulletin when you came in. Open it up. Uh, on the inside of the bulletin on the left, you'll see this headline, Negative Human Pride is Astonishingly Destructive. Negative human pride is astonishingly destructive. Now, we must note that verses like Proverbs 16, 18 are not discussing positive pride. This isn't saying that one should reject the feeling of pleasure that comes from doing well. There, there are things in life of which to be proud. The, the Scripture is warning us against negative pride. Fascinatingly, our age has a very hard time distinguishing between the two. And thus, we are often blind to how negative pride trips us up and keeps us from enjoying the blessings of positive pride. So let's try to define negative pride. What is it? To get a really acute definition in English, I think you must go back to Noah Webster's fantastic dictionary written in 1828. Here is a brilliant summary of negative pride uh, by Noah Webster. Pride, inordinate self-esteem. An unreasonable conceit of one's own superiority in talents, beauty, wealth, accomplishments, rank, or elevation in office, which manifests itself in lofty airs, distance, reserve, and often in contempt of others. Close quote. Man, that is ugly and destructive. We've all seen it in others. But here's the rub. That doesn't just occur in other people, does it? We all suffer from it. What was the base lie that led to our first parents that led them to go astray? 
that they would be like God. Pride. Open your Bible, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. So it's the very first book of your Old Testament, very first book of your Bible. Go to chapter 3, and let's read Genesis 3, 4. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman, and he spoke just like that. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Stop there. Ever since then, every human born of man has been full of pride. By default, we want to be our own gods. By nature, we all suffer from negative pride. Not just other humans, we, you, me, all of us. We all have what Webster summarized as unreasonable conceit. Now, I, I know what many of you are thinking right now. In your favorite um, Peter Lorre imitation in your head, you're saying, I'm not prideful, I'm just the opposite. I'm insecure. <laughs> Thank you so much for that opinion. You, uh, even if you are insecure, I'd like you to listen to uh, Cary Grant's answer to your Peter Lorre. Gary Grant, that's still pride. Insecurity is pride. It just has a sad face on it, right? <laughs> that's what it is. Mr. Grant is correct. Listen, the answer to negative pride is humility, not humiliation. More on that in a moment. For now, just note that pride is an unreasonable conceit that we all possess. And as Webster pointed out, it has devastating consequences. I only have time to examine three. Let's examine three consequences of negative pride. First, it kills our capacity to engage with God. Uh, we already looked at Genesis 3 and the fall of humanity. Remember what happened next? Uh, go to verse 8. Verse 8. Here's what happened next. One of the saddest statements ever written. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid from God, their creator father, the one with whom they had enjoyed perfect fellowship, but now that fellowship is broken, and, and the cause is sin brought on by pride. This week I received a great note slash prayer from my pulpit team partner, uh, Martin McDonald. Look what Martin wrote me. He said, Wayne, our pride clearly separates us from God. Pride effectively says, I don't need God. I can do it myself. This is a point that can't be emphasized enough. If we remember nothing else from this sermon, Martin prayed, Lord, please help us remember that pride is antithetical to our relationship with you. Close quote. Antithetical is right. Look here. Look how John states the principle. First John chapter 2. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. C.S. Lewis put the idea this way in Mere Christianity. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And as long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And, of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Close quote. Pride kills our capacity to engage with God. Here's a second thing pride does. It destroys human relationships. Again, this is visible from the very beginning of negative pride. When God confronts Adam that, that evening in the garden, look, look at Adam's relationship-killing reply. Uh, verse 12, Adam, the man replied, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. The very first couple, and he spoke just like that. The very first couple throws each under, other under the bus, right? This is what sinful pride does. And, and, and as is evident in Adam's refusal to own up to his own sin, pride also destroys any hope of a real understanding of self. 
a friend sent me a fascinating comparison. I want to show you this. Um, he, he, he first listed uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Okay, this is, this is the truth about real love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not conceited, does not act improperly, is not selfish, is not provoked, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord, right? That's what God's love does in human relationships. Now look at this. My buddy took that and he contrasted it with pride. This is really brilliant. Listen to this. Pride is impatient. Pride is unkind. Pride envies, is boastful, is conceited, acts improperly, is selfish, is provoked, and does keep a record of wrongs. Pride finds joy in unrighteousness and rejoices in the pretense. It bears no things, believes few things, hopes limited things, and endures nothing. Close quote. Pride destroys human relationships. That's why Micah 6.8, our, our annual theme verse, says this. Read it with me, please. Everybody together. Micah 6.8, our, our annual vision verse for this year. All together. Mankind, he has told you what is good. And what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Those commands are all connected. Acting justly, loving faithfulness, walking humbly with God. When, when I taught about the, the loving faithfulness part of Micah 6.8, I noted this. I, I said, if you don't walk with God, your, your justice and your kindness will always be mushy. They'll always be swayed by human emotions. Now, look at this brilliant additional thought on Micah 6.8. This is from Rabbi David Foreman. He says this, if you walk with God arrogantly, everyone who walks with God differently will be the other, and you will inevitably lose your fairness and your kindness, your justice and your hesed. He's right. And that takes us to our final point about pride. Our final point is it keeps us from long-lasting good. Listen, you cannot be just and you cannot be kind. You cannot be faithful unless you walk humbly with God. Psalm 1, fascinating contrast, okay? Let's read verses 1 and 2. Look at the contrast here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but he delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Think about sinners and scoffers. What do they do? They always trust their own wisdom, right? Sinners turn to their own way. Scoffers always make fun of anything that they haven't personally created. But the person who eschews his own wisdom and turns instead to God's revealed truth, that person is blessed. And verses 3 and 4 describe the outcome. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Whoa. The prideful wicked are blown away. The humble person who seeks God's wisdom roots and flowers. He produces good in all that he does. When the planes hit the towers on 9-11, attorney Bob Goff ran home to, uh, to meet with his three young kids and his wife, Maria. They talked through all the evil in the world. And they prayed together about what God would have them do about it. The family wanted to achieve something of lasting good. And Bob knew humility is the key to lasting good. When he shared that idea with the kids, they came up with a plan. They said that they would like to write every leader of every country in the world, 
and invite every single one of these leaders to the golf home in California for a private personal visit. If that leader couldn't come, the kids said, let's offer that we will go to that leader and we will humbly sit and listen to their hopes and dreams like friends do. Mom and dad thought that was a pretty cool idea. So they agreed that they would get all the addresses. The kids wrote all the letters. Mom and dad got the addresses and they mailed 200 plus letters to every single leader of any country in the world. They got a lot of, they got a lot of thank you but no thank you replies. They got a very nice one from Tony Blair that had a personally written note that said, jolly good idea. Um, but amazingly, you get this, amazingly, 29 world leaders agreed to host a private audience, a personal brief audience with these preschool and school-aged golf kids. Mom and dad realized that they had to keep their word. So they sold some stuff, and they took a lot of money out of savings, and they took the family on a tour of the world. I'd like you to listen to the results. Uh, this is from the book Love Does by Bob Goff. I realized today I hadn't read to you guys in a while, so I brought a chair. It's story time with Uncle Wayne, boys and girls. <laughs> Here we go. Story time. All right. Uh, Bob writes this. At the end of each interview, the kids thanked the leader for taking the time to meet as they handed over a small red box. Each leader carefully unwrapped their present, lifted the lid, and held up the key to our front door. The kids told each leader that they had really meant it about coming to our home and invited them to bring their keys when they came, you know, since they were friends now. The prince loved his key. Yes, they met with an actual real prince. The prince loved his key, promised that he would make good use of it, and then invited his new young friends to dinner at his house. This kind of invitation happened often because, even though the formal meetings were over, friendship creates a whole new economy. When people realize there's no agenda other than friendship and better understanding, it changes things. The leaders realized we were not there to tell them to stop doing this, start doing that, or talk about controversies or conflicting beliefs or plans. I want to live in a new normal like that where I can reach out to people who are different from me and just be friends. Something happens when you get engaged like that, doesn't it? It changes everything. And the friendships made during those early days by the kids continue to this day and have dramatically expanded. Why? Because they were authentic friendships. There were no angles. No plan in particular other than to be friends. There was no agenda either. There was nothing on the other side of the equal sign to make it balance. Just us. And it was all about whimsy, but it was a strategic whimsy on the kids' part. One that was beyond, wise beyond its years. You'll never guess what happened a little while later. Lindsay, that's their oldest, uh, a girl. Lindsay opened up her email and there was a short note from a leader from one of the countries. It didn't say much. It just said this. Dear Lindsay, we miss you and your brothers. Can we please use our key and come over for a sleepover? And they did. How awesome is that? Isn't that great? Beautiful, beautiful stuff, folks. The key is humility. Our calling is to bring glory to God, right? Humility does that. that. That's why humility draws us to God. It allows for friendships with nothing on the other side of the equal sign. Humility does lasting good. By contrast, pride glorifies ourselves and not God. That's why pride keeps us from doing lasting good. It destroys our relationships and it pushes us far from God. Therefore, as we ask on the right side of your notes, what is God going to do about it? I mean, think. Surely, a loving father won't let negative pride just fester and destroy. No, he won't. He won't. God does two things about human pride. Number one, he will humble the proud. 
Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5 has this very clear statement. Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. God will humble the proud. And he does it because he loves. It's the only loving thing to do because pride is so destructive. Now, there seem to be two arenas in which God humbles the proud. First, God humbles people here on earth. Every one of us has experienced this. He forces things back into perspective, and he brings compelled humility into lives that badly need it. Second, God promises that, that all pride will be wonderfully and appropriately crushed in the era of Messiah's promised kingdom. Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 2. For a day belonging to the Lord of hosts is coming against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, it will be humbled. So human pride will be brought low, and the loftiness of men will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. All God's people said, Amen. The New Testament shows that Christians, those of you who know Jesus as Savior, you are front and center in each of these scenarios. In, in, in the kingdom, Christians are going to serve. Did you know this? You're going to serve with, with glorified lives that no longer reek of the horror of pride or its flip side insecurity. And here and now, Christians have the opportunity here and now to partner with God in the exalted blessings that always attend life when we fight pride. Look here, 1 Peter chapter 5. All of you, clothe yourselves with what, everybody? What's the word? Humility toward one another because, and here's a quote from Proverbs 3, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your care on Him because He cares about you. And that scriptural truth takes us straight to the second thing God does to eliminate pride. He holds out His hand to the humble, only to the humble. Psalm 25, 9 beautifully states the idea. Psalm 25, verse 9, He leads the humble in justice. Do you see that? You can't have any acting justly without humility. He can't. Anybody who says otherwise is lying. He leads the humble in justice and teaches the humble His way. This is what the triune God does. Jesus, God the Son, He, he makes a way for those who are humble enough to respond to His sacrifice and His resurrection on our behalf. He is the way for the humble, which is one reason that Jesus quoted these verses so often. And God the Spirit also reaches out to the humble. In fact, one of the major biblical titles for the Holy Spirit is paraclete. It's a, it's a fancy Greek word, a combination word that means the helper who walks alongside. And it means really like joined at the hip right beside. In fact, outside the Bible, this word paraclete, one of my favorite passages, it describes this giant soldier who is casting a shadow of protection over the soldier who is marching beside him in the midday sun. That's what God the Spirit does for everyone who believes in Jesus. He is the paraclete who walks beside the triune God holds out His hand to the humble. The Son provides salvation, the Spirit walks with us, and the Father carries us home in His strength. In my book, Whatever Happened to Manhood, I borrowed a story from Stu Weber's Tender Warrior. I'd like you to listen to this. It's a great story about, about what the Father does for the one who is humble, the one who is humble enough to take His hand. Tender Warrior, Stu Weber. Story time number two. Here we go. <clears throat> All right. Great, great little tale here. Uh, Stu says, down the hill from our house was a vacant lot. On one occasion, Dad and I were down there together. Must have been playing catch, I don't remember. But I'll never forget the run back uphill. In the midst of our activity, Mom came to the front porch of old 3309. That's an affectionate reference to our home. That's what they called their house. Mom came to the front porch of 3309 and called us to dinner. Dad and I glanced at each other. Our eyes met. They sparkled. Without a word, we both sensed it was time for a race. We took off. 
It was about 150 yards uphill to the house. It was glorious running along with my dad. Man, it was great. But try as I might, my little legs couldn't keep up with his long ones. He started to pull ahead. My neck strained. My muscles stretched. I was losing ground. But then something really special happened. Dad, seeing me start to drop back, reached out his hand to me. His eyes said, grab a hold. Let's run together. Still running, my little hand slipped inside his larger one. It was like magic. His power lifted me right off the ground. I took off in his strength. My speed doubled because my dad had hold of me. Close quote. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, holds out his hand to help the humble. And knowing how critically important it is to experience, he also humbles the proud. So, how can we walk humbly with God? How can I practically take the proffered hand of the triune God? Now, you know, of course, this is an internal issue no other person can really observe. But there are a few things that I have found help me walk humbly with God. And these are from Scripture. Let me share them with you. First, I need to understand what humility is. First thing, I must understand that humility is a proper understanding of self. As a human, I am made in the image of God. Think about that. Every person is created in God's image. There is enough glory in that truth to lift the heaviest head. All God's people said? Of course, as we read earlier, humankind is now tainted by sin, right? That image of God has been defaced. Not erased, but defaced. And there is enough ugliness in that truth to lower the haughtiest eyes. And as a believer in Christ, a person is redeemed. We are made children of God, not through any effort or quality of our own, but totally through the grace of God. There's enough power in that truth to change a life forever. Humility is recognizing all that and living accordingly. That's humility. Very briefly, we need to recognize what humility is not. It is not being a doormat, right? Remember what Cary Grant taught us? The opposite of pride is humility, not humiliation, right? It's not being humiliated. It's not being a doormat. When we accept humiliation, whether it's pushed on us by other people or, quite frankly, most often at our own impetus, we're merely giving in to a very unattractive form of pride. That's all it is. How can I learn humility? Understand what it is. Secondly, seek God's wisdom. Look at Micah 6.8. This is awesome. This is going to blow your mind. Okay, look. The word we translate humbly is sat denun at. Uh, it's a very specific, in fact, it's a really odd Hebrew term for Micah to use. This is a word that only appears one other place in the whole entirety of the Bible. And, and this verb, it, it's used here as an adverb, but it's a verb. It has three extremely important aspects to it, okay? Number one, it is an action verb. Please catch that. Humility is an action verb. It is not a passive thing. Number two, tzadenunat is, is used very often outside the Bible. Oddly, only used two places in the Bible, used a lot outside the Bible. And everywhere it's used outside the Bible, it means to act wisely, to act wisely. Number three, most of the languages and books that use tzadenunat, they emphasize cunning, using cunning to gain understanding. All right, so think about that. Micah uses a very rare word here to teach us what God wants of us. Humbly is a fine translation, so long as we understand the humility of God is, is active. He requires activity. Real humility actively seeks God's understanding and acts wisely as a result. There's an implied contrast here. Our own heads are empty of genuine understanding. That is a biblical fact, though by nature we're so proud we like to pretend that we're full of wisdom. 
But the humble person knows our emptiness. Therefore, she instead actively seeks God's wisdom. That's true humility. Put them all together and walk humbly with your God makes sense. Do you know this walk is a euphemism in Hebrew? It means to live all of life. Anytime in the Bible you see walk, unless it's specifically describing somebody physically walking, if it's used this way, it means living all of life. Walk, live with God. That is, live seeking the one who gives you access to his understanding. Be cunning in that. Seek that wisdom. Such is key to humility. Third thing we can do, pray honestly. Seek God's wisdom and pray honestly. Look here at David's prayer, Psalm 40. Actually, the whole psalm's great. We've only got time for a little section. So look at 11 through 13. Lord, do not withhold your compassion from me. Your constant love and truth will always guard me. For troubles without number. By the way, constant love there, that's hesed, uh, the word that we translate loving kindness, uh, mercy, faithfulness. For troubles without number have surrounded me. My sins have overtaken me. I'm unable to see They're they're more than the hairs of my head, and my courage leaves me. Lord, be pleased to deliver me. Hurry to help me, Lord. Hurry to help me. Do you see the humility and the engagement with God that comes when we pray honestly? David knows his own sin. He's he's being blinded by troubles. He turns to God's constant love, that hesed of which Micah also speaks. Look, by praying honestly in his present situation, David grows in humility. Read Psalm 40 on your own, you'll see it. He is seeking God's wisdom. He knows himself accurately. He does. He knows his own sinfulness, and he knows his covering by God's committed hesed. Tracy Bush of our pulpit team sent me a fantastic statement about prayer and humility. Here's what Tracy wrote me. I liked it so much I put it in your notes. She said, it seems that prayer is the arena in which God's relationship to man is put into perspective. Authentic, humble prayer requires man to acknowledge the preeminence of God and, at the same time, marvel at his closeness each of which is humbling. Think about that. Isn't that true? When you're really praying honestly, you're marveling that God is so transcendent. He is awesome, and that's humbling. But you're also marveling that He loves you so much. He is imminent. He is with you and engaged with you, and and that's humbling. And Tracy closes with this comment, isn't God good? All God's people said, amen. God is good all the time. How can we grow in humility? Understand what it is, Seek God's wisdom, pray honestly, and trust Him with the outcomes. This is run through all of the texts that we've seen today. God is sovereign. Walking humbly with Him means that I recognize that, I rest in that. This is David in Psalm 40, verse 13. He's asking, right, not as somebody who is entitled, but as one who is penitent. This is what we learn from the three Hebrew heroes Nebuchadnezzar tried to force into idolatry, right? They trusted God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whether Yahweh rescued them or whether he let them die a martyr's death. Just for the record, God miraculously saved them. Humility means that having honestly ached and prayed with God, we leave the outcomes in his hand. This is what we learn from Job. In Job 13, the old hero nails the truth in this statement. Read it with me. Job 13, verse 15. Altogether, Job 13, 15. Even if he kills me, I will hope in him. You see, Job knows this life isn't the end. He states in Job 19 that his Redeemer lives and he knows will ultimately rescue forever. Look, Job 19, but I know my living Redeemer and he will stand on this dust at the last. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. He trusts God with the outcomes of this life because he knows the perfect ending of the story. He knows he has a glorified body waiting for him. He knows the final outcome is perfect and assured so he can rest in whatever results God gives here and now. 
Using your powers for good means doing the right thing in humility with the Lord you trust. It does not, listen, oh parents especially, please listen. Using your powers for good does not mean trying to ensure that everything in this life turns out the way you think is best. Please absorb that. Sell your helicopter. Listen to this wisdom. This is from a friend of mine who shall remain nameless as part of the witness protection program from angry helicopter parents. <laughs> he, said, he said this. He wrote me this week. He said, Wayne, it, he said, Wayne, it did not work for our parents to control outcomes when we were kids, and yet we suppose that we can control work, make control work as parents ourselves. Christian or not, no miracle occurred to make us gods. People need to stop drinking that Kool-Aid. All God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Yeah, right, amen. Trust God with the outcomes. Here's another thing we can do to grow in humility. Embrace God's forge. Not very long ago, my friend Matt Lance uh, preached here. He preached on these verses, brilliant message on James 1, 2, and 3. He said, consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, not very long before Matt taught that, one of our college seniors, Brenna Lackey, uh, wrote an article for the Herald Banner newspaper, Greenville, Texas. Look at what Brenna wrote. College senior, she wrote this. Instead of answering my prayers for God to move in some great way or change my circumstances, he was moving me. He was changing my perspective and my heart. As I sat and thought about all the things I was struggling to pull through these last five weeks of college, my heart was being tugged not only to praise God through my struggles, but, this is very important, to praise God for my struggles. She goes on, you must be thinking I'm insane. Why in the world would one thank God for allowing the hard things in life? Now, I'm not saying it's easy by any means. It's a minute-by-minute decision, honestly. But the way my perspective is changing by constantly doing this is miraculous. She closes. I made a list this afternoon of everything I've been struggling with. For example, I have absolutely no clue what I'm going to be doing after graduation, and that is terrifying. In that, though, I praised God because I am available to be wherever, whoever, and whatever He wants me to be. She was asked to write that because she was Miss Hunt County. Brenna embraced God's forge. Isn't that beautiful? By the way, just for the record, she is now a college graduate with a wonderful job, but that is beside the point. The point is she was changed. She was humbled for good by embracing her trials. May the same be true of each of us. One final way to take God's hand and live out the vision of Micah 6.8. Here it is. Do good. Remember, remember, walk is a Hebrew euphemism for all of life. Humbly is an action verbal. The antithesis of acting pridefully is not to eliminate the action. It's just to eliminate the pride. Use your powers for good. That's walking humbly with your God. Let me close with another story from, uh, from Bob Goff's kids' tour of the world. Uh, here's the kids. They actually had to make a couple of tours because more letters arrived late. And here's another one of the stories. This one was uh, one of the later meetings. Um, <clears throat> and Bob tells us this. In one country, the kids were meeting across from the former Communist Party headquarters and were escorted past guards wearing holsters with some serious guns peeking just out of their coats. Doors were open to a large reception room with dozens of chairs lining a huge table that must have been 50 feet long. In that room was an interpreter who greeted the kids warmly, and after a short time, we heard the heavy steps coming down the hallway announcing the arrival of the leader. A stout man with a grave expression entered the room, came toward us down the length of the table, and sat down. There was an electrified hush. The leader peered at the kids, and then he said in Russian, 
children. I'm more nervous meeting you than if I were meeting President Bush right now. <laughs> there was a long pause as the translator finished that sentence in English. He switched to English himself and said, when I get nervous, he grumbled through his accent, and then he paused, I get hungry. And with these words, his demeanor completely transformed. He clapped his hands, and palace servants flooded into the room with trays and trays of kid food, the kind you would eat at a marvelous sleepover. Our end of the table was soon covered with strawberry tarts, pastries you could hardly see because of all the icing and cherries, unknown delights doused with whipped cream, and mountains of ice cream. The leader sat back and grinned and watched the kids' faces beam with excitement. Eat! he shouted as he raised his arms to present this feast fit for child kings. Our kids tried to practice their manners, but they were appropriately slept, swept up in the enormity of what was before them. By the time they were finished, they didn't even make a dent, to be honest. Their faces were almost totally smudged with sugar and happiness. But they got hold of themselves, wiped their faces clean with napkins you don't throw away, and focused on the business at hand. But before they could even launch into their questions, the leader leaned toward my kids, and he looked furtively from side to side like he was about to tell them a secret. In a whispered voice, he said, you know, when I was your age, my dad used to pretend he had forgotten his hat in the woods and would send me to fetch it. Don't tell my soldiers this, but I was afraid the bears were going to get me. So I would whistle like this. <whistles> and he broke into a whistled song for the children that he taught them and then had them whistle along with him. When the kids had the song down, he looked at them with the look of a sincere friend and said in his heavy Russian accent to the children, this is my promise to you. I'll never let the bears get you. And with that preamble, he shared his thoughts drenched in sincerity about how a friend knows what you need even before you ask. He ended his talk with these words that still ring true for our family. You know what it is about someone that makes them a friend? A friend doesn't just say things. A friend does. A friend doesn't just say things. A friend does. And that, my friends is our annual vision for the next 12 months. We are real friends because we do good. We use our powers for good. Pray with me about that, please. Father, I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters that we really would use our powers for good. Your powers, you've given them to us. Lord, the key to this is humility. There, there, we, saw it, we saw it in your text. There can't be justice without humility. Good gracious, the world needs that message so badly today. And I pray you can make me and make these people into ones who spread it. There can't be real hesed without humility, real loving kindness, faithfulness. And there's not any real humility unless we're walking humbly with you. So I pray you will change me and my brothers and sisters. Let us embrace opportunities to walk humbly with you. We're, we're about to take our morning offering. It's a perfect picture of this. It's humbling for us to recognize this is your money. And it is an honor to use it in your way. We pray that as we give and as we pass plates and as we engage with your body, that this is worship for us. That changes us. In Jesus' name, amen.